pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. voice is one of those voices that just goes right to your soul. It's arguably the most beautiful voice that anybody will ever hear. And that voice, you know, that voice. Perfection is just about impossible, but that's always in my mind, you know. There was a very loving, happy part to her, and then there was a kind of a, a darkness there. There's no way to be able to handle that kind of success. There was something about her that she didn't like about herself. I had no idea that I could do a blasted thing. She definitely battled her self-image. She never had a successful romantic relationship. Love is something that I think everybody in this world has to have, and without it, you're not worth anything. She was a very sensitive human being, and she was incredibly injured. No one really knew a lot about anorexia back then. It wasn't something that was really talked about. When I got sick, it scared the hell out of me, man. I said, whoa, down to the old 89 pounds there. My God, Karen, what did you do to yourself? You don't really know when you step over that line. How were you born with that kind of talent, that extraordinary genius talent, and then sabotage yourself? Maybe she never wanted fame. Perfection is a battle you'll never win. You could have fame and the most beautiful voice in the world and still feel a hell inside. I don't think Karen Carpenter's true story has really been told. You can't stop. The only way you can stop is die. We've only just begun to live. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Randy Schmidt. He is the writer of Little Girl Blue. It is a book all about Karen Carpenter, and he is also the writer of Karen Carpenter, Starving for Perfection. It is a new documentary all about the tragic life of the songstress Karen Carpenter. Highly recommended. It's making the festival circuit right now. Be sure to check it out if it comes to your town, or look for it on streaming soon. Enjoy the interview. Mr. Schmidt, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Karen Carpenter Starving for Perfection. Can you tell me how you got into music and writing about music? I'm an elementary music teacher by day, so you may hear bells going off and children's voices here in the background here soon. I've been a music fan as long as I can remember and became a music teacher about 25, 26 years ago and a Carpenter's fan a little longer than that ago. I saw the TV movie about Karen Carpenter in 1989 and immediately fell in love with her voice and her story. And the next day I found myself in the public library and I was researching and finding old People magazine articles and trying to learn everything that I could. Having been born in the Carpenter's heyday, 
I felt I had a lot of catching up to do to find out everything and listen to every song that she ever recorded. I fell in love with the Carpenter's music at the same time I fell in love with a choral singing in school. And it makes sense because the Carpenters have that overdubbed, stacked harmony sound. So I'm definitely a big fan of harmony. Had you heard them before you saw the TV movie? I'm sure that I did over the years and everything, but my parents mostly listened to country music. And so I knew the Lynn Anderson version of Top of the World. <laughs> Sadly, I knew that one more. And I knew Alabama, the group. I knew their version of Touch Me When We're Dancing, things like that. So I was familiar with the music somewhat, but I just hadn't really been introduced to it properly earlier than that. So it's one thing to go to the library, check stuff out, catch up on the Carpenters, but it's a whole other thing to write an entire book, if not more than one book about the Carpenters. How did you decide to write Little Girl Blue? When I was in college, it was right around the time the internet was coming into mainstream, into everybody's homes in the mid-1990s. And I started this internet Carpenters group, and it was one of the first places that Carpenters fans from all over the world started to convene. And people realized they weren't the only Carpenters fan. They thought they had been alone in this adoration for the music. Carpenters fans from Japan and Australia and the UK and everybody was coming together and convening in this. It was an internet mailing list, if, if you remember what those were. And it was through the encouragement and the connections and the networking and everything that that group provided me that I, I guess, got the courage and the encouragement from them to, to do this book because I was... I got the opportunity to interview several people who had several of Karen's childhood friends and other people who had worked with the carpenters in the studio. And I was really just doing it for my own information, for my own curiosity, never thinking I would do it as a book. But as I started to share some of these stories with people, they would, they would say, You're, you've got something really good here. You shouldn't just let these sit on tape in a box somewhere. I kept waiting for someone to write the book that I wanted to read about the Carpenters, and I ended up taking matters into my own hands, I guess you could say. The book is just so tirelessly researched. I can't even imagine how long it took you to write it from beginning to end. It was a much longer process than just the eight years or so that I worked on it, but I was a full-time teacher by the time I started working on that book, too. It would sometimes have to go back on the shelf for six months at a time or whatever, and then the next time I got a chance to do a new interview or something, it would spark that interest again and get it up and running again. So how about the documentary? When does that come about and how did that come to be? Nearly four years ago, I was approached by a man by the name of Andy Streitfeld, who is the head of AMS Pictures in Dallas. And he had read my book when it first was published in 2010, but he didn't know that I was just up the road about a half hour away from him in Dallas. And he invited me in and said, how could we find a new way into Karen's story? Let's work together. Let's do something. And that's where the documentary was born. We really wanted to make it an extension of the book. We took a lot of the themes that were present in the book and found ways to expound on those with the various interviewees that we had. It was really supposed to be a six months to one year kind of thing. And then right about that one year mark is when COVID happened. So everything shut down for a while. And some of the interviews were even done remotely. Like Belinda Carlisle, we interviewed her. She was living in Thailand. 
So we, we had a crew in Thailand that was completely masked and went in and did that. And I asked her the questions via Zoom. You really can't tell because they were able to get crews in some of those places. Same with Olivia Newton-John. That was right during the middle of COVID. And her crew was the one that, that did that on their end. What a coordination effort that must have taken. It was definitely a lot of challenges that we didn't expect because we planned that by the time COVID happened, that this would already be in post-production or something. Yeah, it caught us by surprise like it did everyone, but we made it happen finally. What was that relationship like with your director, another Randy, Randy Martin? Oh man, the thing with both Randy Martin and with Andy, the head of the company, they both kind of gave me a filmmaking 101 because I've always felt like I wrote like a documentary filmmaker. Like I, I picture things in scenes in that way. And this person says prompts what this next person says. And I, I understood it, but I didn't know the terminology. I didn't know the technology. And so they really helped to bring me up to speed and teach me all the filmmaking 101 kind of things that I needed to make my creative ideas come to life on the screen. I knew what I wanted, but I didn't know how to get there, if that makes sense. You had done so much research initially, and you put out your book in 2010, and then here you are all these years later, kind of revisiting some of this stuff. Did you actually learn anything new while you were doing this second part, while you were making the movie? I think I'm always learning new things or meeting new people that knew or worked with Karen. And I think the main thing is that we brought some new voices into this that were not present in the book. And some of those are like Cubby O'Brien, who was the Carpenter's drummer. I wasn't able to get him for the book. So he's a completely new voice to this story. And Olivia was was somebody that I did get to interview for the book, but getting to have her on screen and talking about Karen and what ended up being one of Olivia's last interviews, definitely her last one on the subject of her friend, Karen. But I, I love that we were also able to pull in new voices, like people who were inspired by Karen and the Carpenter's music, Kristen Chenoweth. And to hear Kristen talk about how when she saw Julie Andrews singing The Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Music on a hill, she knew that was her, but there was another part of her that was very much Karen Carpenter. And so we talked about the musical DNA of some of these people. Carney Wilson, growing up with her dad, the founder of the Beach Boys, the that genius Brian Wilson, playing Carpenter's music for his kids at home. And then Belinda Carlisle, she used to sing close to you and into her hairbrush whenever she was a teenager. So that was a new and different extension that couldn't, it wouldn't really work well in book form, obviously. That was really nice. And it's so nice that you had those relationships already, like Olivia Newton-John, that you're able to open those doors again and then open up some new ones as well. Yeah. Right before the end of my work on the book, probably in the last six months or so before I had a deadline with that, a close circle of Karen's girlfriends came forward, and that was including Olivia and then two others that are really lesser known. But man, they came forward and said, we want to help cheerlead this project along. We really don't feel like Karen's story has really ever been told. We've heard Richard Carpenter's version of her story so many times, but they just felt like she hadn't had her story really told. And so the connections made there have carried on to now too. And even though two of those women are actually, no, all three of them are gone, but they contributed so much to telling Karen's story in this century. There, there were several books and things back in 
the 1990s, but I think we've really learned a lot more about Karen over the last 10 to 15 years. There was a time in the 90s that was so peculiar to me where it felt like the Carpenters had this resurgence and there was that, I had that box set that had the Margaret Keene painting on it with Sonic Youth. With the 45s, yeah, they had, they did that tribute album, If I Were a Carpenter. Yeah, and that was, it felt like that kind of played off of Tunic, a song for Karen by Sonic Youth, and then moved into that. And that all also felt like it was tied into the Todd Haynes film. It was that kind of retro cool thing because right after Karen died, there was so much attention on the anorexia, of course. And a lot of people thought she might just be remembered as that. And then the 90s, early 90s come along and these kind of hip grungy bands are are covering their music and it's all at once cool to like the Carpenters again. (laughs) You wrote about people going in disguise to buy Carpenters albums. Yeah, yeah. There was a guy who wrote an article, I think for Village Voice or something like that in the mid 70s. And he said that it was the worst case of consumer stage fright he had since buying his first pack of rubbers. You have to take it and sneak it up there. Like, hurry, put it in the bag. I don't want anybody to see I'm buying this Carpenter's record. The thing that I loved about the movie as well so much is the use of all of the pop culture ephemera and seeing clips from like the Carol Burnett show and their own variety shows and just having that woven throughout is just, just remarkable. Yeah, we wanted to make sure that all of that was featured and even where Carpenters are in pop culture and other places, getting to see how their music has been used in movies like Tommy Boy and Shrek and Dark Shadows. And we wanted to highlight, because that moment when they're driving in the car in Tommy Boy and they're listening to the music on the radio and they're both looking at each other, are you going to change it? No. I mean, that really describes that same thing we were just talking about, that kind of hurry and put the record in the bag before anybody knows. But the the Carpenters sold millions and millions of albums and so many people wouldn't admit to having them in their collection or whatever, but I think it was a guilty pleasure for a lot of people. So what were some of the biggest challenges making the documentary other than COVID? Finding people to participate in the way that you would get yes from somebody, but then their schedule wouldn't work out for whatever reason. And you would plan on a certain, I guess maybe a certain train of subject line or something like that, that you were wanting to explore. And then if somebody didn't end up coming through, you had to scrap that and go on to a, to another direction. But the people who interviewed with us were fantastic. And I think that the story finally started to emerge and present itself to us as it went along. Cause you can go into these things and say, this is what I want it to be about, but you can't make people talk about certain things or whatever. You wait and see what they end up connecting with and what ends up being the best of. And that kind of rise to the top at a certain point. And we realized this is, this is the cream that's risen to the top here. Cause this is what people feel most comfortable talking about or, or most talking about the joy of Carpenter's music and all of that comes together in a really beautiful way. I think. I always find documentaries to be interesting because it almost feels like you can put together a skeleton, but then all of the meat and the blood and all of that has to be done afterwards. After you get all those interviews, then you can start to piece that Frankenstein back together. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a challenge that I absolutely wanted. It's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And so 
that was exciting. I just, like I said, I had to figure out exactly how to do it, but I felt like my creative sense was very much like a documentary filmmaker long before I got the chance to do it. When did you actually get to finally see the film and when did you get to see it with an audience? All at the same time, other than just seeing it on my laptop for a long time or in the editing bays and stuff like that at the production company, the first time I saw it on a big screen was with an audience of friends and family from the Dallas area. We got together and so yeah, to see it on the big screen and with an audience was kind of, was pretty overwhelming. There were even a lot of Carpenters fans that said just seeing Karen's image that big on the screen was so fantastic for them and such a reward. Yeah, that all happened at once. What's next for the film and what's next for you? We have making the way around the film festival circuit right now. We're going to be at the Sonoma Film Festival at near the end of March and several other film festivals that we've been accepted to, but they haven't been officially announced just yet. And so that's the plan. Just keep getting it attention, hopefully, at these different festivals and maybe a distributor in the near future would be great. You have written several other books as well. Any plans on making those into documentaries too? I wouldn't be against it. My other subjects, Judy Garland and Dolly Parton. And I had written a treatment. Actually, the first time I went in to meet up with Andy, I didn't know we were going to talk about Carpenters or what exactly. And I had been working on the Dolly Parton book. And so I took him in a treatment for uh, a TV show that they were producing at that time called The Price of Fame. And so I pitched him this episode about Dolly and based on my book. And that would still be really neat to see that come to fruition. But I probably need to branch out from, I have my three divas, my Karen, Dolly, and Judy. I probably need to branch out at some point and write about something I'm not already immersed in so much. I have a project that's, I guess, lying a little bit dormant right now because there's so many other things to do with my teaching job and then now traveling with the film and stuff like that. So for now, everything else is on pause and just focused on this for now. Randy Schmidt, thank you so much for your time. This is great talking with you. Pleasure. Thank you so much.
Yeah. 